going to actually pick up, if you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8, we're actually going to be um, continuing this morning where we left off last week in the evening service. Um, like that was just something that, that Jesus just wanted to continue doing. You know, we read through the first part of this chapter with uh, Jason, um, and we saw that Jesus came and he was healing every sickness, every disease, because that's just what he does. That's just who he is, right? Everybody who came to him and wanted and desired his healing to be released into their life, it was. It was. He healed every sickness, every disease. And we're going to pick up in verse 16. And it says that when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, if you want to talk about waiting for a word of the Lord to be fulfilled, that's a long wait. That is a generational wait. But on the flip side of that, how awesome is it to think that a prophetic word that we receive and we record, this is why it's important to write down what the Lord is revealing to you, could be fulfilled in your future generations. That you could be a blessing to your great-grandchildren or spiritually speaking, to the future generations that the Lord raises up here. That's something to still get excited about. See, in our culture, we don't think that way. We're all about me, 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 right here, right now, you know. But you're starting something that is so much bigger than yourself. It, it, you know, what, whenever we get in the swimming pool, the kids like to do that, um, you know, the, the whirlpool. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's not fun to start that whirlpool at all. There is so much opposition and you're fighting and you trip and you fall and you feel like you're getting nowhere. But just think about what you're beginning because the future generations can jump in with their ducky and be like, wee, you know, and they're just caught up in it. They're just caught up in the move of the spirit. And they think that's what church is. They're not having to fight and to struggle and to war. They just know the spirit and the presence. So... Isn't that exciting to think about? You're starting to stir something up. So that's exciting. But um, anyways, that was another sermon for another time. It was good for this, this day, right? It says, this was to fulfill the, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And we know this from Isaiah 53. It says, he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. And that's from Isaiah chapter 53. And we put our chapters and verses in. Those are man-made, you know, but... Uh, that's in verse 4, and starting in verse 5, it says this in Isaiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And we usually quote that from the King James, you know, by his stripes we are healed. Um, same message, you know, different word. But, but this brought to my attention an interesting aspect about prophecy, when Jason was reading this last week, and I just felt led to share it this morning. You know, because here we have this prophetic word that was given um, about Jesus back in Isaiah 53. And living on this side of history, every other time that I've read Isaiah 53, when I read verses 4 and 5, I always think, yes, on the cross that was fulfilled. You know, by his stripes we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, you know, the punishment that was on him brought, brings us peace. 
uh, um, you know, that he took up our infirmities, he bore our diseases. And I always just picture that all happening and being accomplished on the cross, you know, which is partially accurate. But according to Matthew, verse 4, that part of that prophetic word that says he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases, Matthew said that word was being fulfilled as Jesus went around healing people. While he was going about, before he ever even carried the cross, he was going about and he was bearing. He was taking up infirmities. He was bearing their diseases. He was taking those things on himself. It's just a really cool thing about prophecy. That, word, that part of the word was being fulfilled before the cross, according to Matthew. That's literally what he said here in verse 17. He was doing that to fulfill what was spoken through that prophetic word. And so, you know, I've heard before, it was actually in one of my classes in seminary, that a lot of times prophecy is like a mountain range, you know? From a distance, it all looks like it's all one mountain, that it's all right there at the same place. But once you get close to that mountain range, all of a sudden you see there's miles between those peaks, even though they appeared to be distance you know up close and that's sort of the way prophecy can work sometimes and that's the way this word this word is a very clear example in the scriptures of how that happened before he took up the cross he was taking up infirmities bearing diseases before he was ever pierced for our transgressions it's just a cool thing so if you've been given a prophetic word and a part of it came to pass but the rest of it didn't I don't know about you all, but what I tend to think is uh, they just must have missed it. They just weren't hearing right, or maybe I didn't interpret that right, you know. That may not be the case. It may be that the rest of that prophetic word is just for another time, just for another place, just for another season. So don't give up on every part of those prophetic words that you've received, whether it's looking at God's word itself or whether, you know, through prophecy, through the gift of prophecy, you've received that word. It's going to come to pass, right? Don't give up on every word, every promise from God. In fact, Paul wrote to young Timothy. I, I, just, I have to remind myself of this all the time. But he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 19, he said, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command. He's commanding him to do these things. In keeping with the prophecies that were once made about you. These are personal, given through a person prophecies. This isn't the written word of God. And Paul's writing to Timothy, he's like, I'm giving you this command in keeping of the prophecies that were once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Holding on to faith, holding on to a good conscience, which some have rejected. And so they have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. I don't want us to be a people that, that suffer shipwreck, all because we gave up on a part of a prophetic word that God gave to us. Keep up the faith. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep persevering. Paul literally told him to recall those prophecies so that you might fight the battle well. So when you're in a fighting season, look back on those prophecies. Bring them back out. Start declaring them. And if you don't have a, a, a spoken prophetic word that's been given to you, well, We'll, we'll help you out with that. We'll give you a prophetic word. Just see myself, any of the elders. Just see anybody. Y'all got the same Holy Spirit that we got, right? See them, and if not, dig into the word of God. You can't go wrong with that, right? And it contains every promise that you need to fight these battles well. 
Recall them. Keep fighting. Keep believing that the Lord is good and what he promises, he fulfills. He will do it. He will accomplish it. Because the challenge is, and, and this is, it's a hard word, but it's a true word, so we're going to receive it, right? So, so Jesus, just give us eyes to see what you're doing, hear, ears to hear what you're doing. Lord, we just give you our whole lives right now. We give you free access to every part of it, even those parts that you know we're trying to hide from you. We know we need to let go, of, but we just keep hanging on to these things. Jesus, all we are is yours. Amen. Because that's the reality. To follow Jesus, it's a whole life commitment. It's not a hobby. It's not a fad. It's a whole life commitment. It's giving him everything. It's trusting him that his ways are better than our ways, that his thoughts are better than our thoughts. It's letting go of our opinions, of what we think is right, and the way we think things ought to go. It's letting go of all of that and just trusting him. Trusting him to have his way. That he can bring beauty from ashes, right? That even when things are going awfully wrong in our lives, I mean, things went pretty bad for him, didn't they? He didn't want to take on the cross. Remember, three times he prayed, if there's any other way, Father, you know, let this cup pass for me. He didn't want to do it in the flesh. So don't feel bad when you feel that way. God, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good right now. I don't like it, you know? Jesus is your great high priest who can empathize with you. He went through it. He knows. He can relate with you. But yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. And I'll tell you what, I bet that when he got that seat at the right hand of the Father, he didn't regret the cross. He didn't regret going through that difficult, dark season of death. Because not only did it bring life for himself, <laughs> give him the name above every name, but it purchased salvation for all of us. He saw that God saw the bigger picture. His father saw the bigger thing that it was going to accomplish. And so that temporary, um, that temporary, uh, it's more than inconvenience, but ours are inconveniences compared to the cross, right? The temporary suffering that we go through, it can accomplish something so much bigger, so much bigger than what we had planned. So we just trust the Father. We trust him. We trust Jesus. And we see this happening here as we continue reading. As an example of this, we see that Jesus is healing the sick. He was driving out demons. He was fulfilling the prophetic word that Isaiah spoke about him. And these crowds kept growing of people who needed healing, who needed deliverance, people who wanted to hear his teachings. Now, we would think that this is a good thing, right? When we see crowds of people... Like so much so that people got to stand outside and open the windows. You know, we, we're like, man, God is moving. That's awesome, you know. Here we are in the center of God's will. This is what he wants. This is what he desires, you know. And you would think that Jesus would just keep ministering to those needs. And that he would get excited about the crowds. I mean, people are wanting to give their lives to follow him. But Jesus responds in an unexpected way. We see this in verse 18. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he ordered to cross to the other side of the lake. Instead of getting all excited about it as we think that he would, and they're coming to be healed and he wants to heal them, he actually commands that they go on the other they get away from the crowd. So are us introverts, we can get excited about this word, right? Jesus, he was a people person, but sometimes... Too many people are just too people-y, and he just needed to get a break, right? 
Maybe that's my own opinion that I'm inserting here into the Word of God, but no, that, there's another reason for this. Jesus didn't leave the crowds and go across the lake because he just was tired of people and he was exhausted and didn't feel like ministering anymore. He commanded to cross the lake and to go the other side because there was an assignment from the Father that he couldn't miss out on. We read about it later. There were two demon-possessed men that Jesus was getting to go and to set free. Everyone else give it, gave up on them. They were so disgusted with these men, they tried to bind them up, and they just, it was just nasty how they got treated. Even though the need was great there, and the crowds were great there, and people were hungry and thirsty for the move of God that was happening through Jesus' ministry, he knew that he had an assignment, and that's where he needed to be. The best place for you in your life is right in the center of God's will, even if it doesn't make sense to anyone else, even if it doesn't make sense to you, <laughs> we still, we follow the Father's will. Jesus then responds in another very unexpected way as he's starting to get into the boat to go across the lake. And we see this in verse 19. It says, just then a teacher of the law came to him. This is one of the people that are really hard-headed that he's trying to reach. And Jesus, he comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, just let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Man, that just feels like such a harsh, cringy word that Jesus gave. But you see, this is what I see happening here. And I could be wrong, so bear with me. But what I see here is Jesus giving a clear example that to follow Jesus, it's not to be an emotional response. Because when the Spirit's moving and you're caught up in that, like Jason talked about that anointing, you know, that group corporate anointing that you can't experience on Facebook. You got to be here to experience it, you know. When you're caught up in that, it's so easy to say yes to Jesus. Yes, I'll leave behind everything. Yes, I'll follow you. But Jesus knows that it takes more than just an emotional reaction. It takes a commitment, an intentional decision to follow him. Not one just to make in the heat of the moment. The choice to become a disciple of Jesus, to follow him, it is one to be thoughtfully considered. In fact, there's another time when Jesus spoke very directly to the crowds of people with this exact same concern. Uh, we find this in Luke 14, if you want to get ahead of me here. Luke chapter 14. Often in our culture, we measure success. We measure success by the size of the crowds, by the numbers of those in attendance, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. If, if, if a church body is healthy, it should be growing. It should be growing, you know, numerically, but spiritually as well. You know, a healthy body will grow. But Jesus valued commitment more than numbers. He, he valued commitment. He says this in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. It says again that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And Jesus turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me 
They can't possibly be my disciple. Talk about a harsh word right there. I don't want to hate my mom. Mom, I don't hate you. <laughs> I'm following Jesus, but I don't hate you, you know? Seems like a harsh word there. You've you got to hate everybody. You've you got to hate yourself to be his disciple. And again, take it or leave it, but I, I don't, this is an example where I think Jesus is using very strong language to drive home a point. Because if you look at the rest of Scripture, he teaches you to love even your enemies, right? <laughs> he said to hate someone in your heart is the same as killing them, murder. You're guilty of murder if you hate someone in your heart. I don't think he's, t he's, he's teaching that you have to hate yourself and everybody else, um, especially your own family. I think he's using a strong language just the way he said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If that was the case, I'd be eyeballless right now, okay? Because my eyes trip me up all the time, you know? He's just using strong language to get the point across. That to follow Jesus is a whole life commitment. You can't have somebody more important than God, somebody equally important to God. It's that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. It means God is first and foremost. That's to be a disciple of him. And then Jesus went on and, and drove this point at home in verse 28. And he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower or, or a shed, <laughs> whatever. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down, estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Thank God you have elders who did that. You know, God estimates and figured out all the labor and made sure that, you know, we're going to be able to do it. Um, he said, because if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. God wants you to finish strong, finish well. If you can't finish well, don't even start following him. He wants you hot. He wants you cold. He doesn't want you lukewarm. He spits you out. He wants people on fire for him. On fire for a move of the Spirit. In verse 31, Jesus went on. He said, suppose the king's about to go to war against another king. Because guess what? If any preacher, if any evangelist, if any apostle, if any teacher, if anyone ever told you that when you begin to follow Jesus, life's just going to be peachy, then they have set you up for failure. When you choose to follow Jesus, you declare war on the enemy. You tell the enemy, and you tell your own flesh, you've got no hold on me anymore. You're crucified. You're dead to me. Old self, you're gone. Don't think that they just give up without a fight, do they? When you choose to follow Jesus, the war begins. Because you're no longer a captive. You're no longer held as a captive, forced to do the will of the enemy. Now you've been set free. The enemy doesn't like freed prisoners of war. He likes where you used to be, right? The war is on. So suppose a king's about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one that's coming against him with 20,000 men? If he's not able, he'll instead send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything. Let's say that together, everything. Jesus said this in verse 33. 
Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. I don't know about you, but there's some things in my life I've still got to let go of. You know, there's some things I still hang on to. Jesus said, my disciple, you got to let go of it all. Give up everything, everything you got. In fact, he goes on in verse 34. Maybe this is the reason why the Christian church in America is so ineffective in their witness and in their evangelism, right? Why no one wants to be like us. In verse 34, Jesus said, salt's good. Who can amen that? If they got heart disease here, you know how good salt is once it starts getting taken away, right? You don't know what you got till it's gone. I, we're a salty family. I pour salt on everything. And garlic. Make, making me hungry here. All right, it's good stuff, right? <laughs> but he said, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? If my salt shaker, it's not salty anymore, I'm not going to pour it on my stuff. What good is it? It lost its saltiness, right? In fact, Jesus said it, it's, it's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. He says thrown out. What good is it? It does nothing. I don't know. Is that a common thing? Do people pour salt in their manure piles? I don't know. None of the farmers I know, but anyways, I don't know what Jesus is talking about here, but he said it. <laughs> he says, not good for anything. Instead, you throw it out. So he said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Not everybody can hear this message. It is a hard word to give up everything and to follow Jesus. It's so easy to get the lights going and the fog going and real gentle worship and and then just everybody is just entering in. And Jesus, I'll follow you wherever. It's hard to be like, well, here you go. You got a guy in sandals and shorts. And you got to give it all up to follow Jesus. You with me? You know? Are we going to do this thing? But that's what Jesus is all about. There's nothing wrong with all those things. Real, authentic, genuine life commitments have happened in, in all those places. But that's what it has to be. Life transformation will only take place when you make a whole life commitment. Because Jesus ain't a thief. He won't steal your life from yourself. He'll willingly take it from your hands as you willingly lay it down. True and proper worship, right? You lay it down, Jesus raises it up. That's why we do water baptism. You die to your old self and you let Jesus raise you back up as a new creation, a new life. You can't have one without the other. You can't have new life without death. It's really hard to let go of those things. It's a lifelong process. We came up with a cool churchy word for it called sanctification, right? Letting go of that old self, crucifying it, letting the new self raise. But it's so worth it. Here's the thing. Jesus said you've got to count the cost before you start following me. And that sounds so hard. But think about what you're receiving, <laughs> Think about the kingdom that you're receiving. You're affording out the cost. There's nothing in this life that I could ever gain that could ever even start to compare to the abundance of his kingdom. It's all his. In fact, everything that he created is a part of his kingdom as well. You don't really lose anything, right? Even the things of this earth are his. And sometimes he just loves you and he'll spoil you with something that you kind of wanted but didn't really need. He's that good. He's a good, good father. He will give you graciously all things. His word promises it. And so Jesus doesn't want us, however, to get tripped up 
in our old selves. I love this word, you know. Don't look back, you're not going that way. We were not created to go that way. These knees do not go very well backwards. I can't, if I tried to run backwards down these steps, well, we'd probably have to, you know, call up, uh, 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 yeah, um, Donnie, you know, and have him come and, and rescue me because I had pretty good gash in my head. Um, we weren't created to go backwards. We weren't. I'm t- you know, Megan just got her, um, her permit. We're teaching her to drive and you know, man, you go where you're looking, you know, when you're staring at that speedometer, you know, it's like, uh, hey, 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 road, <laughs> you know, you go where you're looking, you decide to look back over your shoulder, well, guess what, your steering wheel goes that way too, right? We weren't created to do it, so why do we do it? Why do we do it? Jesus doesn't want us to get tripped up, but doesn't, don't we do it? Look at God's people, look at the Israelites, they spent 40 years circling around in the desert. Why? Because they kept saying, oh, wasn't Egypt good? Man, I miss my slavery. I miss that harsh labor. At least we got meat, you know. They weren't ready to go forward into the promised land because they kept looking back. Um, You know, if you want another example, take a look at, 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 at Lot's wife. You know, she's still a little salty about that, that whole, <laughs> whole uh, situation, right? God, God had provided for her deliverance, but what did she do? While she's being delivered, she looked back. Man, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a good place. And she missed out. Don't look back. I mean, and there's so many examples in the scriptures I could give you. Don't look back. It, it's, it's good to celebrate the past and, and, you know, don't deny who you were when Christ called you. It's not bad to reminisce about the good old days. Remember from a few weeks ago, the old one, it's way better than the new one. But you can't have the new good old wine unless you embrace the new. You got to have both, right? You're going forward into the promises of God. You're a Joshua generation, not a Moses generation. I don't want us to be a people that stand up on the mountain like the word that Marie received, and we just get to gaze at it and gawk at it from afar and say, isn't that nice? We're the Joshua generation that says, that's ours. God said that's ours. I don't care that the enemy's there right now because my God's bigger. He's greater, right? And we take the land. It's yours. It is yours. The only reason the enemy's on it is because you haven't had the faith to walk into it yet. And God doesn't want it to get outrun by critters and animals. He wants it to be a fruitful land when you get there. Remember, like, like that, that, that uh, whirlpool? He doesn't want you to have to be the one to stir up the whirlpool. The enemy's walking in circles so that you can just jump in and enjoy it. It was going to be a fruitful land. All they had to do is walk into it. Just so, ooh, that's his promises for you. The hard work's been accomplished, right? It is finished. All you got to do is receive it. All you got to do is position yourself to receive from the Lord, and he will give you every one of his promises. Don't get tripped up. In fact, Jesus gave this very stern word about this issue in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. He said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I mean, he did not mince words about this at all. You can't look back. If you look back, you're not fit to serve in the kingdom of God. It's a hard word. But it's Jesus' word. So, what it, what, it's a good word, right? Every word of his is good. 
There's wisdom in this. When, when we're following Jesus, we are sure to begin on an adventure. No doubt about it. We're never quite sure what's ahead of us, but we're sure it's going to be interesting. Jesus didn't say it's going to be a life of ease either. We know that it's the beginning of a life of battles, but it's the beginning of a life of victories. You're starting to fight for the first time ever. You've been granted your freedom when you said yes to Jesus. When you received his salvation, the battle was on. But he's going to give you the victory. You may trip up and lose a few, but you're going to win the war, right? You're going to win. There's victory in your future. That is your destiny. It's an empowered life to demolish the work of the devil. That's what 2 Corinthians teaches us. We have the weapons of warfare to demolish strongholds. So those chains that used to bind you, they can't possibly touch you again. Sometimes we don't want to demolish those strongholds, though, do we? They were fun. They give us a little bit of pleasure. We kind of enjoy them. So we just kind of set them aside. We pretend they're not there, but when the time's right, we kind of sneak back in and enjoy it a little bit. And, oh, Jesus, forgive me, you know. He gave you weapons to demolish them. That's what he wants you to do with those strongholds. Don't delight in them anymore. Don't, don't leave that temptation in your life. Demolish those things. They're slavery. Egypt was no good. Okay, stop tasting and seeing and reminiscing about it. You got bigger promises to go into. You want to talk about meat? Think about the meat that's awaiting you in the promised land, you know? Think ahead. Think ahead to the prophetic word so that you fight the battle well, so that you win your victories. Think ahead. What was behind you may have been good, but God has something better. In fact, Psalm 102 says that he, he promises to satisfy your desires with good things. So even though we hunger and we thirst for some of those things in the past, he has good things that will bring life and blessing that he wants to satisfy them with, right? Don't satisfy them with what the enemy used to satisfy them with. Satisfy them with the things of God. He wants to fulfill those desires in your heart. Oh, yeah, I guess I was back on this sermon. I'm sorry. That, that was a good word, though. That was a good one. I'm, I'm sorry. Finishing up with this one. But it's the beginning of battles, but it's the beginning of victory. It's the beginning of healing and deliverance. And those certainly don't come without a fight, do they? In fact, Jesus' disciples were about to learn that. Um, back in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to end here on these few verses, starting in verse 23. Remember, he was about to uh, head off to the assignment that his father had for him, going across the lake. So it says in verse 23, you know, Jesus, he just finished saying, you know what, if you're going to follow me, you've got to count the cost you got to leave it all behind. Let the dead bury their own dead. Don't, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. And then verse 23 says, Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. You see, that kind of word thins out the crowd pretty quickly. We get excited about crowds. We get excited about numbers. We get excited about attendance. But every time Jesus turned to the crowd and he gave them that hard word, you got to leave it all behind, everything behind and follow me. He looked around and he was left with, a handful of people. They came for the healing, not for the healer. They came for the deliverance, not for the deliverer. Those who really wanted to know Jesus and to have a relationship with him, they are his disciples. They are the ones that left everything behind 
and follow him. Wherever he goes, whatever happens, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, they're following him. They are committed. And that number is few. Mm. I praise God that we're one of them, right? We're one of that number, aren't we? We're the committed. Doesn't matter what comes our way. Jesus is good, and this is going to end well. It ain't looking good right now, but it's going to end well. Commitment. We're following him no matter what. Now, one would think that the safest place in the world to be with Jesus was to be with Jesus, right? I mean, safest place in the world. We're about to see that um, it's true, but that doesn't necessarily mean what it, we think it means. And you, you all know the story. Well, most of you probably do. But again, to follow Jesus, it's not a life that we live free from the storms of life. The Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust. We, we go through the same storms of life. Jesus said, in this world, you have troubles. You go through the same troubles of this life. The only thing that separates the wheat from the tares and the, the sheep from the goats is the fact that we got a relationship with Jesus. It's not going to end there for us. He's going to take us through the shadow of the valley of death, or the valley of the shadow of death. He's going to take us through those things. It's an empowered life to have peace in the midst of the storms and to actually have the power to bring an end to those storms of life. And verse 24 says, Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so much so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Y'all probably heard this testimony before, you know? They're heading out across the lake, and all of a sudden, like, instantly, this storm comes in. It's kind of a good picture of what it's like to follow Jesus, you know? You start following him, and all of a sudden, boom, things are getting rough. Things are getting rough. The troubles of life come your way. And there's Jesus sleeping in the middle of it. Like, if that's not a, a there's probably no greater picture of God's peace that surpasses all understanding than that picture right there. Jesus is at perfect peace. He's sleeping in the middle of this storm. I, I, I mean, the waves are coming up over. The disciples think the boat's going to capsize. They think they're going to die. They're running around trying to figure out what to do. And Jesus is just asleep. That should be a picture of us as followers of Christ. The rest of the world is panicking. Their heads are falling off. They're, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're so afraid, you know? And here we are like, we don't be afraid of that. You know, we've, this is going to see us through. He's our healer. He's our protector. He's our provider. He's our everything. He's got this, right? It's no surprise to him. So the disciples are running around frantically, fearing for their lives. And they went, they woke up Jesus saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And I really felt that word pierce my heart when I read that. You of little faith, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? Then Jesus got up, rebuked the winds and waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and they asked, the wrong question, by the way. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And I think the disciples missed the whole point that Jesus made when he woke up. And I think we have a tendency to miss it as well. We look to Jesus to save us when he already has. We ask Jesus to heal us when he already has. He already provided everything on the cross. He said it's finished. It's yours. 
And then beyond that, he gave us the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered and equipped for every good work. Jesus didn't say, thank you so much for calling out to me. Now I'll save you. You've done what was right. Jesus said, where's your faith at? Why are you afraid? Rebuke that thing. Rebuke it. Don't accept it. Don't fear it. Rebuke it. And the peace and the calm returns. They were amazed at the kind of man that Jesus was, but they missed the point of the kind of men that Jesus knew they were. Right? Jesus knew what they were capable of. <coughs> and Jesus knows what you're capable of as well. He's not surprised by the storm of life you're going through. Nothing surprises him. But if it surprises us, then we ought to turn to him. But asking him how he wants us to respond to the storm. It's not wrong to cry out to Jesus, but sometimes we ask Jesus to do something he already did. He has given us the authority and the power to establish it here on the earth, even as it is in heaven. Jesus never went about healing the sick and delivering people from demonic possession by being like, Father, will you please do this for me? No, he drove out those demons. He said, go! And they went, right? He didn't beg and plead with his father. He knew that when he was baptized in the river in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. He knew he was equipped with power to drive out the kingdom of darkness, right? And so have you. We don't have to beg and plead like orphans. You've been adopted in this family. You've been given the signet ring. You have the power and the authority to drive it out. Rebuke that thing that you're afraid of and see what happens, right? So what storms are stirring up fear in our lives right now? Instead of fearing them, maybe we need to start rebuking them, right? You've, every weapon formed against you will come to nothing, but every weapon that you have been given gives you the power to demolish what the enemy is bringing your way. Tell those storms the promises of God that far exceed the troubles. Tell them how great your God is. Tell them the plans and purposes that he has for you. Tell those problems who you are in Christ. You're more than a conqueror, right? More than a conqueror. You are a victor in him. Tell that fear to go in Jesus' name. <coughs> and allow that peace to start filling your life once again. It's time to transfer those tear-filled nights into declarations of victory. You don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to worry anymore. You don't have to be depressed and discouraged anymore. You don't have to despair anymore. You have the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> that literally brings you strength and courage to rise up in faith to fight today. His love is new. His mercies are new. His grace is new today for you to rise up in faith and to start fighting once again, right? It's time to speak life into those dark places of our lives. It's time to rise up in faith to start applying the victory that Jesus paid a high, high price for right the authority that he has given us today is a new day where the storms of life that used to cause us fear they're going to start to fear you right it's a new day all right so let's just close in prayer so jesus 
We know that this all begins with surrendering our everything to you, being a true disciple. So Jesus, you know that thing that's still got a hold in my life. You know that thing I have a hard time letting go of. Jesus, right now I repent. Just forgive me for hanging on to that thing and help me to see it the way you see it. Help me to see it as slavery, as Egypt. And help me to see what you have promised in place of it. That good thing that brings life and blessing. <coughs> Jesus, this morning, help me to better understand the power and the authority that you have freely placed in my life. I don't have to fear the work of the devil anymore. I can demolish it. The devil's got to fear me. The kingdom of darkness can't stand. There's no shadow in your presence. And your glory fills my life through the Holy Spirit, casting out every shadow, every area of darkness in my life. I have been set free by Jesus. And who the Son has set free, we're free indeed. Help us to walk in freedom. And help us to set other captives free along our life journey, Lord. Help us to be like you, as you said, to do even greater things than you did because of the Spirit within us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you declare us to be and help us to realize more fully what it means to be a child of God. Oh, Jesus, what it means to be a child of God. What it means to be a member of your kingdom. Help us to have a hunger and a thirst for the things of your kingdom and not the things of this world in your name. Amen.